This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Pears. Want an apple that tastes worse? Grow a pear today. Welcome to the first ever bonus episode of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. So we'll be bringing you these bonus episodes here and there with a different format. We'll be giving you updates on some of the topics we've already covered and hitting some other environmental news. In a bit, I'll be chatting with the three other producers of The Sweaty Penguin. But first, let's dive into this week's news. Because of the decrease in air travel caused by coronavirus, meteorologists have less atmospheric data to make weather predictions. Luckily, they have a plan B for data collection, Balloon Boy. General Motors just announced the release of a new electric Hummer, so now environmentalists too can overcompensate. Scientists recently observed bioluminescent waves on the California coast caused by the presence of special glowing phytoplankton in the water. In unrelated news, catch this week's SpongeBob episode, Plankton Buys a Glow Stick. A new study found that indoor gas stoves are responsible for high, potentially dangerous levels of indoor air pollution. Unfortunately, this is one type of gas you can't just blame on the dog. Due to coronavirus, New York City has halted its public composting program. No more freeze bars, said the worms. A satellite launched in 2018 is so high-tech that it can, from space, see small rifts and features on the surface of Antarctica. Unfortunately, the scientist in charge just created the satellite to spy on his ex-wife. Researchers found that 2019 was the second hottest year on record. Number one, of course, was 1980, the year Ryan Gosling was born. A new study finds that the sun is actually quite tame, and stars of a similar size often have five times more magnetic activity. Just remember, sun, size doesn't matter if you're kind, confident, and know what you're doing. Marine biologists say some species of fish in aquariums are exhibiting signs of loneliness from a lack of human interaction due to coronavirus. The aquarium will be hiring Elisa from the shape of water to help them with their depression. Uranus ejected a giant plasma bubble during Voyager 2's visit, so Voyager 2 probably won't be taking you up on that second date. Scientists recently discovered a new invasive species in the United States called murder hornets, or as they're called in OJ's house, hornets. Do you wish you could plant a fruit tree that harms the environment? Try a Bradford pear tree. Not only is a Bradford pear tree an invasive species that grows thickets and wipes out surrounding plant life, but pears that grow on it are invading our cakes, pies, and even salads. Pears don't even think about putting it on pizza. Welcome back to the Sweaty Penguin bonus episode. I'm joined by our three amazing producers, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. We're going to chat a bit about their takes on our first four episodes, which covered traffic, lawn pesticides, Yosemite National Park, and lead paint, as well as touch on some points we missed, some news updates, and some clarifications, because we really value facts here, and we work really hard not to make mistakes, but if we ever do, reach out and let us know so we can get you the right information. So with that out of the way, let's go back and talk about some new developments with our last four episodes. We can start with lead paint, which just came out a week ago at the time we're recording this. It hasn't even come out yet. So there's not a lot 
that's new, but I'm curious to ask, uh, Caroline, this was the first episode you wrote, and what was your biggest takeaway from it? I think my biggest takeaway, content-wise at least, is that lead and lead paint is a much bigger issue than I thought it was. Um, Just because lead paint was banned back in 1978, which feels like, I don't know, a lifetime ago, I wasn't alive. You just don't assume that that's an issue anymore because we're not using it. But it's still a massive environmental public health risk. And so I think something that I've taken away from the episode, something that I hope other people do as well, is we should really be careful with what materials we're using um, these days because they can really come back and haunt us in the future. So I think just putting extra thought into what the ramifications are of putting certain materials into the goods that we produce is really important. Yeah, lead paint was a newer topic to me. I think I had maybe a Wikipedia level understanding going in and I think you were around the same before you started researching it extensively. Frank and Shannon, what did you take away from that episode? The uh, fact that this is still a thing and that we're not talking enough about it. It's really important that we still made an episode about it because, you know, bringing the recognition it deserves is the first step towards fixing this issue. Yeah, Lead Paint is probably my favorite episode so far. I think it's the most interesting one that we've covered to me um, before reading the monologue of the episode, I only really knew about Flint, Michigan and how that's obviously such a huge problem, but there are problems with lead paint in random homes. Like it's not always as big and as like newsworthy as Flint, Michigan, but it's still a pretty big problem. Yeah, absolutely. To me, the biggest takeaway was in our conversation segment, how much our two guests agreed. And as the moderator, I was actually struggling to find stuff for them to disagree on. I mean, for all of these, they've agreed on the problem, which I think is exactly what we're going for. And often we'll agree on the problem, but disagree on policy approaches, and that's fine. In this episode, they weren't even really disagreeing on policy approaches. They were proposing a lot of the exact same measures, which was really, really interesting. And right now, it's a little weird of an issue to be thinking about because we are in the middle of a global health pandemic for a different health issue. And to be thinking about how can we fix our lead paint problem, especially since it does feel like such an old problem, even though it is still very much an issue. It's a little weird to think about that right now, but there are people out there thinking about it. I was reading about in Toledo, Ohio, a few months ago, they passed a law requiring all rental properties to obtain lead safe certificates, which is a much more drastic, shouldn't say drastic, a much more dramatic measure than we've seen in a lot of other parts of the country. When we were researching, we were finding that they only had to disclose known sources of lead, but they didn't actually have to do any testing. So that was really interesting to see. And right now it's in local news there because landlords have been suing and it's been moving up into Ohio state court. And so we'll see if it goes through or not. I'm curious, I don't want to get too political here, but I think I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I think it's a great move in terms of public health. I think that, as we mentioned in the episode, a lot of our remaining issues with lead paint do exist in, um, you know, older buildings, which do often tend to be in urban centers. um, And those are oftentimes 
like people who live there are oftentimes those without good, like access to good health care. So I think that it's a really important step to take in terms of public health. Although we did talk a little bit in the monologue as well about requiring landlords to test for lead paint and potentially requiring them to disclose this might um, result in increased costs for landlords, which would result in rent increases, which could be, you know, create kind of a crisis in terms of low-income housing opportunities. And on the flip side of that as well, it could also cause, you know, areas of extreme urban blight because if you disclose that there's lead in a lot of buildings in you know, a certain area, people are not going to want to live there. They're going to move out. It's going to um, just become problematic in terms of maintaining the area and maintaining the economic value of that area for both residences and businesses. So I think there are a lot of potential ramifications that we need to be mindful of, but in terms of public health alone, I think it's a really good, important first step. Yeah, definitely. So let's go back to uh, Yosemite National Park. Yosemite's been in the news a little more recently because due to the pandemic, the people are not allowed in the park. It's been closed. And you may have seen articles about this already. I've seen quite a few saying that the wildlife there has been absolutely thriving since the park has closed. I saw one where a park ranger said that the bear populations had quadrupled. I don't know how that is physically possible in such a short time. Uh, Maybe it was an exaggeration. Maybe that was a statistic. I don't know. But it seems like when you remove the overcrowding, it does have a noticeable impact on the land. And in such a short period of time, I know this year has felt like it's taken a decade, but it's really been just a few months. So what do you make of that? Well, I think it's important to address, you see a lot of people talking about natural areas and the environment in general, that since humans have slowed down, stopped going to national parks, um, and just generally stopped doing like the everyday things that we normally do, the environment has been quote unquote healing. Um, And people are saying, you know, we are the virus and the earth is healing. I think that's a really harmful misconception because I think there are ways for humans to coexist with the environment and actually steward the land that we are on. And we just need to be harnessing those ways better. So I think we don't need to stop doing what we're doing. We don't need to stop going to these parks in order for them to be thriving. I think it's just a matter of changing our behaviors. So the issue of overcrowding is very important in that if we send too many people into these parks, it is going to you know, destroy the natural processes because we aren't letting nature be. And not to mention the affiliated problems with overcrowding, like we mentioned, you know, littering, trampling, things like that. I think that if we can work to solve the issue of overcrowding in Yosemite National Park, in all of our national parks, it is going to help us take a giant leap forward because there will be less um, potential for destruction with less people there. And then we can slowly work towards education and towards figuring out ways to coexist with these natural areas instead of, you know, using them as our property. Yeah, that's a really good point. We can find ways to coexist with our environment and it doesn't have to be a global pandemic forcing us out of these beautiful spaces. 
when I was writing the Yosemite episode, the biggest thing I found, because going in, I expected it to be a simpler episode than the others because it's just one piece of land, a big piece of land, but one piece of land. And we were looking at problems there, whereas with something like traffic or pesticides or lead paint, this is everywhere. And it turned out to be one of the most complicated ones because there are environmental factors, there are economic factors, there are factors relating to a whole bunch of different uh, populations and promoting equity. There's the whole history of the park. And I think the biggest lesson I learned from doing it is that a lot of these things can be looked at all together. We can innovate, we can find ways to handle all these issues simultaneously. We don't have to just look at one and sacrifice another. So with the populations doing so well, I mean, that's just one example of lots of news stories out there right now and lots of people saying to me, knowing that I'm interested in the environment, like, oh, look at how much better we're doing. Uh, Carbon emissions are down 8% this year and people aren't driving their cars and people are doing all these things to protect the environment. And on the one hand, that's true. There have also been a lot of environmental drawbacks during this period where regulations on harmful chemicals and that kind of thing have been rolled back and we've been allowing plastic bags in our grocery stores now to be more sanitary. And a lot of these things, it's a debate we don't need to have right now, whether or not they needed to be done or didn't need to be done, but it's not a spotless year for the environment, but that is one piece that it's nice to see that the populations are doing a little better in Yosemite, even though it's not under the best circumstances. Really happy that the carbon emissions have dropped. So that's really nice. But I mean, also when it comes to going back to about as normal as we can get past the pandemic, one of the things the CDC is recommending is, you know, paper menus and plastic utensils and all these other kind of disposable things, which, you know, sure they'll mitigate the spread of the virus, but also, you know, they put a stress on the environment. And I think it's going to be a real test to see how we can balance both public health and just environmental consciousness. I'm wondering if after COVID, like as we start kind of like going back to normal beaches and parks aren't going to let everyone in at once, they're going to like have a certain like a lot of amount of people in at a certain time to prevent overcrowding. I'm wondering if that's like a viable option for like year round, like post COVID life to kind of prevent overcrowding in parks like Yosemite and preventing the, I guess, environmental drawbacks that come with having too many people in there at one time. Yeah. So now let's go to lawn pesticides. And first I was chatting with my dad, who, as you know, if you've listened, was the expert interview on that episode. And I was glad to hear he liked the episode, but he did clarify something for me, which I think we did potentially misexplain a little bit. I didn't understand it completely when we were talking about it. So we talked about the ED50 labels of toxicity where a product would be labeled as danger or warning or caution depending on how toxic it is and 
a point that I think we missed, which I knew intuitively but didn't think to clarify, is that the danger warning caution products are the products that the EPA has said are safe for use, and those are just a further categorization of them. There are also pesticides that the EPA has banned that are even more toxic than the danger ones. So when we were talking about banning those, it wouldn't be so much to say we need to ban the toxic pesticides. We have banned a lot of them, and it's just a matter of where do you want to draw the line? Should we be banning more, or should we be leaving the bans the way they are and regulating in a different way? So I think that was an important clarification. I'm glad my dad brought that up. I think when it comes to like pesticides and, you know, things that are meant to, in a sense, kill or eliminate anything, there's some people who will definitely be hesitant to use them just because by virtue of their own product itself, there's always going to be suspicions of it actually affecting somebody in a terrible way. I'm not sure if regulations are the way to go. Um, I, I guess it's more of a maybe a PR, like some kind of campaign or something that's like pesticides, not that bad, probably won't kill you. I think it's a problem of understanding of product, understanding that it, it's not going to do you much harm and that it's probably not going to do you any harm at all and that you're probably safe using it. I agree with Frank. I think that a lot of it is a, a problem of understanding. I think a lot of us just hear the word pesticide and immediately think, oh, harmful, dangerous, problematic for my health. And I think that's not necessarily the case as we learned in the Lawn Pesticides episode. And I think that a couple of solutions to this are important. I think that the first step is, you know, having a trusted source such as the EPA release more information clarifying these differences. It's, I know it's hard to communicate nuanced information like this to the public. It's much easier to just say all pesticides are bad and harmful. It's a lot more difficult to clarify the multiple different types of information that people need to know in order to use pesticides safely and effectively. But I think that a, a trusted source spreading this information first is really important. But second of all, I think that it's important for you know, parents to understand this in order to communicate it to their children. Because I think a lot of this information is really just intergenerational when you think about it, because most of us learn yard work and things like that from our parents. You know, you just do, like your parents tell you to go outside and do whatever to the lawn or to the garden, and you just do it. Um, and you just trust whatever they tell you. And so I think it's really crucial to communicate this type of information, specifically to parents, because that will prepare the next generation to have a better understanding of this issue. I completely agree with Frank and Caroline that it's really important to be communicating this correctly and with nuance, because they're right, some pesticides are good, some are bad, some are in between, and reading labels is important, having the right information out there is important. So let's move to traffic. And traffic was a very big topic. It was the longest episode we've done. And even with that, we had to cut quite a bit out of it. And there was one piece of the conversation that we weren't able to keep, but I think is still important, which is that some cities have actually 
banned traffic. In Oxford, England, for example, you can park your car outside of the city and it's just for walking and biking. I've been to Florence, Italy, which is a much, much older city than any city in the United States, but that's how it is there too. It's just for walking. And on the one hand, it's really nice to have certain spaces designated for walking. I think every one in America has experienced this in some way, whether it's a Memorial Day block parade or a road race or something where streets are closed off. But I'm curious if you think an actual walkable city where there's not cars is something that would ever happen in the U.S. or is something we should be aiming for. I've been to Oxford, really beautiful place. But the thing is, it's... It feels like Oxford was made for walking. I, I think a city in itself, like if I imagine a city like, I don't know, New York City or like Boston, personally, I do not see it being a walking only city. I do see uh, Back Bay being walkable or um, a suburb or a part of a city only being walkable. But cities of this magnitude, especially in the US, I feel it would be too much of a problem to do it. It's certainly sounds very infeasible and impractical for an entire U.S. city to get rid of cars. I was chatting with uh, Professor Reibstein from, he was our expert in the lead paint episode, and we were chatting about traffic because I wrote a paper on it in his class, and he was telling me about a potential policy idea where in New York, for example, where they've got the congestion tax, instead of just having the tax actually creating a section of the city that's especially congested, kind of like you were saying, Frank, and putting garages along the perimeter of it. And basically when a driver gets to that point, they put their car in the garage and hop on the subway and go to their destination or walk to their destination or bike to their destination or however they want to get there, ski lift to their destination. I don't know. Um, And that would alleviate all the congestion in that particular area. I'm not sure I'm a fan of that strategy, I guess, for a few reasons. Well, for one thing, I think garages are really poor use of urban space. I think that the most congested areas in most of our cities tend to be the areas that are already the most densely populated, the most crowded with buildings and other structures. Um, And in the case of older cities like Boston tend to be um, older areas, you know, like think of the North End that was built a long, long time ago and wasn't necessarily built to facilitate new construction. Um, So I think that's one issue with the proposal to put a bunch of garages in urban area. But I think another big issue is accessibility and also um, jobs. So in terms of accessibility, not everyone can use public transportation. It's not necessarily accessible to a lot of disabled people. Um, And a lot of people rely on their cars in order to get around. And then the other issue of like jobs and transportation, there are a lot of jobs that rely on using cars to transport stuff to transport goods around. If you're a contractor, you're not going to be wanting to take, you know, 
pipes or wood beams on public transportation. You're not going to want to carry them for 15 blocks. Um, similarly, I my internship last summer, I did a lot of tabling. So I'd have to put a big tent, a table, a bunch of chairs and a bunch of supplies in my car and drive them around the Twin Cities. Um, and that's not something I'd want to lug around a city. So I do think there are um, key benefits to being able to drive up to wherever you want to go. I think that a full-on ban of traffic is not necessarily feasible and not necessarily a good idea either. I think congestion reducing tactics are a much better idea because then it really forces people to take a second look at their behavior and it hopefully only allows really essential um, use of cars in these most congested areas. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And another point I'll add to that is cost. It would be a lot of effort to first create all those garages. It would cost a lot of money, would create jobs, but um, someone has to pay for those jobs. And it would also, after you do that, it would take a lot of upgrading the transportation there and getting the bikes in place and just making that effort happen. So I'm curious, do, I actually don't know this. Do any of us know how in Oxford and Florence and those cities that are just for walking, they actually move stuff around that normally we'd use a car for? <laughs> so I have no idea. I was just thinking about that. With a lot of patience. And a lot of yeah. <laughs> patience and a lot of help from other people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cars at night, we don't see them. They're yeah. small cars. We can't really see them because we're not from there. They're like super invisible cars. <laughs> Frank, Caroline, Shannon, thanks so much for taking the time to chat, and we'll do another one of these really soon. Thank you so much. Great, thanks. Thanks, Ethan. Today's episode was written and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale, and edited by Frank Hernandez. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.